Throughout human history, societies have grappled with fundamental questions of how to organize themselves. Government does nothing as well or as economically as the private sector of the economy. Tech companies are actually taking over the world, and they're doing it with our government's help. But there also seems to be a growing awareness that they have become so big that they have too much power now. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and is gravely to be regarded. There's a hidden goal driving the direction of all of the technology we make. For well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that combines military, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. People all over this country are wondering whether or not this great country is evolving into an oligarchic society. This alternative vision argues that ordinary men and women are too small-minded to govern their own affairs, that order and progress can only come when individuals surrender their rights to an all-powerful sovereign. Now we can see a new world coming into view, a world in which there is a very real prospect of a new world order, and today that new world is struggling to be born, the dream of a new world order. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be covering manufacturing consent. That is the topic for today that was requested by a listener and I drew some of my research from a book of that title by Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman, but the rest of it I've gotten from other research and tying things into what's going on today and that kind of stuff. So that's what we're covering today. It's all about manipulating people into consenting to a certain narrative or a certain goal. Now, a lot of this does correlate very well to what I've talked about with the Hegelian dialectic, the problem-reaction-solution. It's basically a method to manufacture consent in a way. It's a at least a way to create a strategy in order to manufacture consent and a way to game that out, that kind of stuff. Before getting into the episode itself, I want to cover a few quotes that are relevant for this topic. The first will be from a book that I will be referring to throughout the episode, Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky, and I'll go ahead and just start off with that one. And this is discussing the current trend through the 20th century and prevailing opinions about the media. And it says, quote, that the media are independent and committed to discovering and reporting the truth, and that they do not merely reflect the world as powerful groups wish it to be perceived. Leaders of the media claim that their news choices rest on unbiased professional and objective criteria. If, however, the powerful are able to fix the premises of discourse, to decide what the general populace is allowed to see, hear, and think about, and to manage public opinion by regular propaganda campaigns, the standard view of how the system works is at serious odds with reality. And again, that was Noam Chomsky from Manufacturing Consent. The next quote is from Walter Lippmann out of Public Opinion, which was written back in 1922. So this one's a little older. Quote, Without some form of censorship, propaganda in the strict sense of the word is impossible. In order to conduct propaganda, there must be some barrier between the public and the event. Access to the real environment must be limited before anyone can create a suedo environment that he thinks wise or desirable. The way the world is imagined determines at any particular moment what men will do. 
But what is propaganda if not the effort to alter the picture to which men respond? Public opinions must be organized for the press if they are to be sound, not by the press, as is the case today. The creation of consent is not a new art. It is a very old one that was supposed to have died out with the appearance of democracy, but it has not died out. It has, in fact, improved enormously in technique because it is now based on analysis rather than on rule of thumb. And so, as a result of psychological research coupled with the modern means of communication, the practice of democracy has turned a corner. A revolution is taking place, infinitely more significant than any shifting of economic power. Within the life of the generation now in control of affairs, persuasion has become a self-conscious art and a regular organ of popular government. None of us begins to understand the consequences, but it is no daring prophecy to say that the knowledge of how to create consent will alter every political calculation and modify every political premise. And as a disclaimer, that was actually a group of quotes from Walter Lippmann out of his book Public Opinion. Now, the final one will come from Edward Bernays out of the book Propaganda. I have read the majority of this quote before, but I am reading it again because it is just uh, so applicable here. And it goes like this, quote, The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live together as a smoothly functioning society. Our invisible governors are, in many cases, unaware of the identity of their fellow members in the inner cabinet. And then later on, he says... In theory, everybody buys the best and cheapest commodities offered him on the market. In practice, if everyone went around pricing and chemically testing before purchasing the dozens of soaps or fabrics or brands of bread which are for sale, economic life would become hopelessly jammed. To avoid such confusion, society consents to have its choice narrowed to ideas and objects brought to its attention through propaganda of all kinds. There is consequently a vast and continuous effort going on to capture our minds in the interest of some policy or commodity or idea. Now, he brings up a good point there that we don't all have the time or ability to research absolutely everything and so therefore rely on other people's opinions and on propaganda. Now, I would probably argue that instead of relying on propaganda and advertisements, that we should rely on people that have built up a reputation of trust and we learn from them, from somebody that we trust, and replace the propaganda aspect with that aspect, but that is just my personal opinion. Now, all of these quotes bring up some important aspects about how prevalent propaganda is, how big of an impact it makes on society, how big of an impact it has in a democratic society specifically. There is talk about censorship and how important that is, about choosing what information people see, and in that final quote, that we have consented to this idea of being fed a filtered list of ideas and thoughts and things, content of all kinds, all of these kinds of things, uh, the mention of psychological research and mass psychology, 
there are many different aspects here. Uh, another one that I'll mention here in a minute is where uh, Edward Bernays mentioned how the invisible governors are in many cases unaware of the identity of their fellow members. And it talks about how it's not necessarily that it's this conspiring cabal, but rather it is just people in those positions doing what people in those positions do and what they're incentivized to do and performing their function in society because we need these invisible governors, this invisible government behind the scenes feeding us propaganda so we know what to do and what to buy and what to think. And a lot of these people are all for this idea. But to continue on with the actual show, I want to first start off by mentioning a few of the things that Chomsky says in Manufacturing Consent, or at least him or Herman. I'm not sure which one wrote which parts. But one of the points that they start off with is the control and concentration of corporate media, specifically in the United States. I'm going to cite a different article than that book, but it makes the same point and says the same thing, just in a very concise and more up to date way. This quote comes from the Global Critical Media Literacy Project, and they have an online site that does pretty much what you would expect. The title of this article is Corporate Media and Big Oil Coup. And the quote says, quote, As the oil and media industries consolidated, their economic interests aligned, which solidified their relationship. By the end of World War II, 80% of the newspaper industry was independently owned. Presently, six corporate companies control 90% of all media, including, but not limited to, television, radio, magazines, and newspapers. In fact, the top 10 global media corporations are headed by 118 board members who concurrently serve on executive boards at nearly 300 other media companies around the world. Of the 10 big media giants, eight hold memberships on each other's board of directors. And that'll be the end of that quote. Uh, I picked that because it has the stats that Chomsky brings up in particular of how the industry was fairly independently owned back at the end of World War II. I would say that 80% independently owned is uh, pretty good, but the current stat is that 90% is owned by six companies. So that is very consolidated in comparison. And Chomsky talks about, and I keep mentioning Chomsky, I kind of forget about the other author here. So I apologize for that. I will just continue to do that because that's what's in my head. And I'll probably misspeak if I try to do anything else. But Chomsky talks about how with this concentration, they're able to create a narrative and get people on board with something that otherwise wouldn't have been able to be created. So if you have all these independently owned stations and papers and radio programs and all these things, then they're going to be running whatever story they want to run at so many different companies doing so many different things with lots of different personalities and incentives and all kinds of things. You're going to get a much wider array of coverage from that. There's just no getting around it. It's not going to be very homogeneous, so to say. But if you have this concentration of just a handful of companies, corporations that own almost all, 90% of all media of all kinds, then you are much more likely to get a much more concentrated dose of a specific narrative. And Chomsky brings out some historical examples of this, mostly from war and uh, basically overthrowing dictators in third world countries and how one dictator will be presented as this horrible, evil person, but then this other dictator in another country that's even worse than the first. 
is portrayed as a freedom fri- fighter that just needs a little extra work. And, you know, he's rough around the edges, but we are going to get in there and help him install, you know, a democratic government. It's going to be great. And so just in the way that that is covered, if all of the news coverage on one is positive, or at least has a positive spin on it, and all of the news coverage on the former was negative and about all the horrible atrocities that they have committed, then the opinion of the people watching the news and consuming this media is obviously going to be slanted towards the one and not the other. And because of this, the U.S. then gets the support that it needs in order to go overthrow dictator one and in order to go support dictator number two without there being a lot of resistance. I admit I did not read the entire book at got a little too much for me to go through all of these examples in great detail and the statistics of how much one person or one country was covered over another and all this kind of stuff. So uh, I do admit I did not make it all the way through the book. But to bring out the points that I think are relevant for this conversation, I, I think I just hit the high points of that. And that was kind of the point that was being made was that there is such a concentration. There are these narratives that get pushed and they are a lot more homogeneous just because of this concentration. Now, there are some more conspiratorial aspects and things like that that go on as well, but Chomsky specifically points out that it's not that every single person in media is in on some vast conspiracy. That's not what's going on. It's not that they're all trying to push a certain narrative. It's that these people were put in place because of their leanings, because of their political views, because of their personalities. And so if you control the companies, say the six major corporations, and you can choose who is the boss, who is the editor, who are these key positions in these media companies under you that you own and that you are in control of, then you can make sure that people are installed that are very likely to go along with a certain slant that you would probably want to get pushed. And so again, there might be a more organized agenda at the top, but within media and the reporters and the writers and all the different people involved, it's not necessarily that everybody's involved on this big scheme to try to you know, put one over on the American people. It's more that there's a lot of control at the top in order to make sure that things are aligned in such a way that it will be fairly easy and fairly natural for a certain narrative to become prominent. And at the same time, these people that have been put in these key positions are very unlikely to put forth a story that contradicts this type of narrative. So if everybody is very patriotic, very pro-war, very pro-government, then it's unlikely that they're going to give as much coverage to an anti-war protest versus coverage of troops and their success in Afghanistan, for example. Or if they do cover the anti-war protest, it will be from a very negative slant and probably highlight a lot of the negative aspects. If there was a case of violence or a nasty thing said, that's what would get blown up in the story instead of covering the legitimate other side of the story, the other person's point of view, their perspective. That's likely not going to happen. And you make sure that people are in place who are going to pick these stories and cover these stories that would 
carry it out in this type of a way. There are quite a few examples that I personally thought of as I was going through these concepts and these issues and this whole topic of manufacturing consent and propaganda as a whole. Uh, another shout out would be to the book Propaganda by Edward Bernays. That is one that I did make it all the way through. It's fairly short. I would recommend anyone do that. That is one that talks about just the art of propaganda as a whole. I've read some quotes from it. I think Pete Quinones, when I interviewed him, he brought that one up as well. But the first example that I thought of was the Spanish-American War. So when there was an interest to get us involved in a war there, mainly from a lot of the major businessmen that had a lot of influence in the government, but the American people weren't very interested in war, especially against the Spanish. Why would they go to war with Spanish? It's not like they wanted to start sugar plantations and take over that industry by taking Cuba. But there were a lot of incentives to do this on other fronts, especially the business front. And so with this, there were a lot of propaganda ads that were put out in newspapers where it showed the Spanish as being represented by these big evil apes that were just evil and destroying things and stupid. And of course, a lot of these stories corresponded with, you know, the worst things that anybody could come up with about the Spanish probably taking true events and then completely blowing them out of proportion. But the American people were hit by this through a lot of the different newspapers and a lot of the media outlets at the time. And that kind of prepped them to think of the Spanish as the enemy, as someone who is inhuman, as someone who it is okay. Not only is it okay, we should kick them out of there. We would be better for the locals rather than the Spanish in Cuba. And it's this idea and the whole false flag issue with uh, the ship that came in after that to start the war. That's another issue. But for the propaganda front, that had already made its way through prior to the false flag, very, very likely false flag, I should say. I don't think that has been admitted to and confirmed officially, but that is the very likely scenario, and I am not getting into that. The next example that I had was from the early 1900s. I think it was either 1915 1917, somewhere around there, when J.P. Morgan bought up 25 of the most influential newspapers in the U.S. And for this example, I will go ahead and just quote, let's see, this comes from the U.S. Congressional Record, February 9th, 1917, page 2947, if you would like to look it up yourself. But on the record, according to this congressional investigation, quote, in March 1915, the J.P. Morgan interests, the steel, shipbuilding, and powder interests, and their subsidiary organizations got together 12 men high up in the newspaper world and employed them to select the most influential newspapers in the United States and sufficient number of them to control generally the policy of the daily press in the United States. These 12 men worked the problems out by selecting 179 newspapers and then began by an elimination process to retain only those necessary for the purpose of controlling the general policy of the daily press throughout the country. They found it was only necessary to purchase the control of 25 of the greatest papers. The 25 papers were agreed upon. Emissaries were sent to purchase the policy, national and international, of these papers— an agreement was reached 
the policy of the papers was bought to be paid for by the month. An editor was furnished for each paper to properly supervise and edit information regarding the questions of preparedness, militarism, financial policies, and other things of national and international nature considered vital to the interests of the purchasers. So I have mentioned this example before at some point, I think, in season one, and this does tie into the Rhodes Roundtable groups, the Society of the Elect, and this whole agenda towards basically ruling the world kind of a thing. But uh, again, that's beyond the scope of this conversation. Another one that I have mentioned in the past as well, I've probably offhand mentioned a lot of these, but the next one I thought of was the Gulf War. So in order to get us into to the Gulf War, there was this piece of propaganda about babies being thrown from incubators and left on the floor to die, and this was this horrible, tragic tragic story. There was an interview of a young girl who apparently was there and witnessed it, and she was crying, and it was so sad, and it was very touching, and it got a lot of the American people on board with going in there because, you know, look at these horrible, evil things that are being done. We need to do something about that. I don't care if it's not my country. We need to stand up for people, for humans, for humanity as a whole. And this is something that would be considered a just war because of these reasons. Well, it turned out that she was lying and she was the daughter of the ambassador to Kuwait. And it was all of, uh, yeah, a lot of corruption going on there. And basically, it was just a bunch of propaganda. But that's the whole point is that's what got all the media coverage. Then afterwards, when it was found out that this wasn't a very reliable source, and this probably never happened, that aspect didn't really get a lot of coverage at all. And the American people were already on board and the war proceeded. That is generally how it goes with all of these things, especially getting into war. There's usually a lot of propaganda ahead of time because in general, the American people have never been on board with war until a certain event happens or a lot of propaganda is pushed on them in conjunction with multiple events. That's usually the way it goes. You can look at World War One, World War II, um, invading the Middle East after 9-11, all of these different things. It's a similar pattern that happens again and again and again. And a lot of this really fits the mold of manufacturing consent, consent to go to war. If you think back to the Ron Paul campaign when he was running for president and when he was specifically running for the Republican ticket, there was one point when he was second in the race and so he was doing very well. But a lot of the news coverage was not mentioning him at all. And not only were they not mentioning him, they were going out of their way to make sure that he was not mentioned at all. There were multiple uh, broadcasts that I I have seen where they would say so-and-so is in the lead at number one, and then in number three is so-and-so, and number four is so-and-so, and just totally skip number two, Ron Paul, because they didn't want to talk about him. And he did not get a lot of coverage in the news. I saw this similarly with Ralph Nader. I followed the Nader campaign before that. That was one of the first people I voted for, and um, I probably would not vote for him today. I guarantee you I would not. But at the time, that is who I voted for at one point. And following his campaign, there were times that he would completely sell out a huge venue, one of the biggest in town, 
and then there was nothing written about it at all. You come to the paper, even the local paper, the next day, and there might be an article buried on like page 15 somewhere in the back, but there wouldn't be a lot of coverage, and that's kind of the whole point. Whereas if some other big candidate came to town, even if there was hardly anybody that showed up, you could think maybe the Hillary campaign when she ran against Trump, that happened a lot, or the Biden campaign against Trump. There were oftentimes that Trump would get these huge rallies with all these people, sell out entire stadiums, and and you would basically get, you know, a little blurb about it in the media. But then Biden or Hillary would have a big conference and there'd be basically all the people associated with the campaign and maybe a dozen others or a few more. And there would be a lot of coverage over all the things that they talked about and the venue that it was at and the fact that they came to this town and blah, blah, blah. And so that is the point of highlighting coverage on a specific thing and not another or, and usually and, highlighting from a certain slant for one thing and another. One thing would be the positive slant, the other would be the negative slant. And so this is often the way that things are portrayed in the media. So if you are consuming the media, you are just going to get whatever it is that you are being fed. Now, another example I thought of was Operation Mockingbird or Project Mockingbird. I don't know how it's referred to, but that's the one where the CIA basically wanted to manipulate the news media and put certain people in charge and push certain stories. And it was a whole undercover CIA project to control the media in the United States. You know, you're seeing a theme here, I would hope. This is a, another one, like all of the others, that is not just a conspiracy theory. No, the U.S. intelligence organization set out to control the media around the country to manipulate people through pop propaganda into believing what they wanted them to believe. Yes, that actually happened, and you could argue is still going on now. But the final example that I have would be a very modern one that I just ran across, I think, a week or two ago, and that would be the Canadian military. Now, this one was really interesting. Apparently, there was a desire to set up a branch that would specifically influence public opinion using propaganda and other techniques, and this was outed along with a specific example of them doing this as a test run, where in Nova Scotia, the citizens were told that there there were these dangerous wolves that there that were out on the loose and it was very dangerous for people to be out and about they needed to look out you needed to be aware of this and be careful and stay tuned for further information and this was hit all over the media and people legitimately were worried about this now not only that but there were actually these wolf sounds these howlings that people were hearing a lot more than usual they hadn't really heard this before and and so this correlated with the information from the news about all of these wolves that are out and this big danger that's out there in the wilderness. Um, it made people upset. There was a journalist that uncovered the fact that all of this was actually just a big propaganda campaign. Not only was the military using the media in order to push a propaganda story, basically just to test things, it wasn't even a real thing at all. 
but they were also putting loudspeakers out in the in the wilderness so that people could hear and think that there really were wolves that were out there prowling around at night. And so this got uncovered. The citizens were obviously not very happy about this, that they were the ones being targeted by propaganda by their own military. And I believe that project has officially at least been shut down. Uh, now, you could argue as to whether it's really shut down and would they have done that or even said they were going to do it prior. Who knows? You've got the idea of a trial balloon. James Corbett recently talked about this when I heard him covered this story as well, where he talked about how you can throw this trial balloon, you get an idea out there to the public, you see how they respond, how they react, and then you can always just withdraw it afterwards and you still gain that valuable information of how people responded to this idea. And not only that, but how the actions that you were trying to push, this propaganda campaign that you were pushing, how effective that seemed to be, at least at first, until you got caught. And so there are a lot of benefits from a propaganda standpoint in doing something like this, even if you're going to get caught and you're going to rescind it. Now, when we apply this to things going on today, you could look at things like coverage related to the science behind masks. Now, with masks, I have mentioned multiple times on the show that there are a few studies out there. Now, there's a new one that just came out like a week or two ago that I don't think I've mentioned on here, a Danish study that was specifically about COVID-19. The other studies that I had found previously were covering specifically influenza-like illnesses. And so there were things like COVID-19 that could probably be applied in roughly the same way. But this new Danish study was specifically on COVID-19 and showed that there basically was no statistical difference between people that wore masks and didn't, and therefore there was no point in mandating it. And so there are many scientific studies about this that are peer-reviewed. They're randomized controlled trials. These are the epitome of what you're going to do if you're going to try to get an objective scientific study on something. The issue, however, is that there is extremely little media coverage over this specific study, the Danish study, or the previous study that was even on the CDC's website, or any other study of this nature, or even this opinion whatsoever. Pretty much the only coverage you get of this type of opinion is the very extreme side of the anti-maskers that are just selfish, they don't care about anybody else, they won't even just put a cloth over their face. You know, it's such a simple thing to do. You're going to save lives. Just listen to the science. You know, but these crazy conspiracy theorists, QAnon folks that are just selfish and won't do what they're told. You know, these are the people that are ruining everything. That's why we're doing all this stuff and have to do more lockdowns. That's why COVID's going crazy. You know, basically, that's the narrative that you're going to get covering the basically the anti-mask side, or I wouldn't even go so far as to say anti-mask, but just a side that says masks are not a very effective way of fighting this virus. And a full mandate of masks is definitely not a policy that is scientific. But again, you don't get coverage in that way. You get coverage about uh, droplets and the spread of droplets and how masks work to prevent droplets. And if it's aerosolized, how much of the particles still get trapped and how much don't. And, you know, if you're in a room, for a certain amount of time, the effectiveness of how much masks can block what you breathe in as well as what you breathe out for someone that's sick versus not sick and all these kinds of things. You can get some scientific coverage of the subject, but when you actually get to the scientific studies and the true science behind the policy itself, you generally are not going to get the coverage about the 
you know, the contrarian point of view. And the only reason it's the contrarian point of view is because of this coverage. That's kind of the whole point. The general way that science is handled is that you do things like scientific studies, you use the scientific method, and what you get as a result and what you can reproduce with similar results is what is considered scientific. And that would be the main viewpoint, and then the contrarian viewpoint would be anything against that. However, in today's world, we are the exact opposite, and it is because of the media coverage of these things. And so that's a big issue today. The same is true with lockdowns. There are uh, lots of different studies and different examples as to why that is not an effective way of fighting this virus, but you're not going to get that coverage. You're just going to get some extremist point of view to represent that side of the argument that you can easily dismiss, and then you're going to get the majority of the coverage being positive towards doing something for the sake of others, and this is what we really need to do, and this is what the science says, and you know all these catchphrases and stuff. But the point is that all of this is manufacturing consent for things like masks or things like lockdown or things like a certain candidate or things like going into a war. That is what is happening. And it is happening much more now than it had previously. I mentioned the stat about the consolidation of corporations that control various news outlets and basically the media as a whole. Now, there is another aspect that I wanted to get into that's even more modern, and that would be getting into the internet, social media companies, big tech, this group. Now, this group is extremely concentrated by far. Basically, Google dominates the video and search aspects of the internet. And then you have Facebook through Facebook and Instagram, and maybe you can add in their Twitter and that between the three, they absolutely dominate social media on the internet. So you have this very small group of companies and there's others that dominate other aspects. But the point is you have what we generally consider big tech that controls the majority of what people see when they get on the internet. Now, with this, you end up with the same results that you have with all of these other subjects about the media as a whole, except you get it to a much greater degree because you can make things much more efficient and much more controlled on the internet because you're dealing with data and algorithms and print and you have code behind all of these things and you can control how people get what they get, what they can access, what they can't access, what they're going to easily see and access, and what is going to be very difficult for them to uncover and dig up. And so this creates an environment where you have a much more manipulated experience with content than you do even with watching the mainstream news. And that creates its own issues. And to me, my opinion is that it basically just takes these issues like a lot of things COVID has, especially since COVID has hit, and it just amplified them a hundred times. And that's what's happening with the world of big tech and the internet as well. Now, this does tie into a topic that I have mentioned in another episode about some of the ideas behind Plato's Republic and Newspeak out of 1984. And it's this idea of controlling information that people get and controlling ideas that people have by controlling the information that they have access to and the 
ability to even contemplate things because they have or have not been exposed to certain things. And so with the Republic, it's the idea of, well, if they don't hear any stories about uh, rebellion, for example, then you're not going to have a rebellious public because they won't even think of rebellion because they've never even been exposed to this concept of rebelling against your leaders. But instead, they're only exposed to the idea that your leaders are good and they are omnipotent and they're doing, they're benevolent, they're doing everything for the greatest good, this idea. And so you're going to have a good citizenry. And the same thing with Newspeak from 1984. The goal is that you don't even have a word for rebellion. So how in the world could anybody think of it? And if anybody did think of it, then they get taken out by the thought police. And so they're never heard from again. And so you pretty much are not exposed to those ideas and concepts. And therefore, again, you get a society, a citizenry that is very compliant and easy to uh, fit whatever mold you want them to fit. And that's what's happening today as well through the media as a whole and what we have access to and what we were hit with from the media as far as coverage, as well as how that coverage is handled, like I said, in the positive or negative light and what spin is put on it, as well as the online world on the internet and what we're getting hit with there. I would even argue something like QAnon would be at least in my personal opinion, I think that that is a psyop, a psychological operation by an intelligence organization, probably the CIA or CIA combined with somebody else, and that the main point here is for controlled opposition, that you create the opposition, you control the opposition, you get a certain narrative, you give them bits of truth, and you get them on the right track as far as this is how things are really going on, but then you make it extreme, and you turn up the knob a lot, you add in a bunch of falsehood, you blow things way out of proportion. And so on one hand, you do have opposition to the mainstream. But on the other hand, that opposition is very controlled in what they know and what they're hit with, as well as they're controlled in the sense that you're not going to get a normal mainstream person to think that there's some pedophile ring that's running America and sacrificing children to create some drug to make them live forever. Like The, the normal person is not going to believe that. They're never going to get on board with that. So you make sure by controlling the movement and making it very extreme that only a small subset of the population is going to go that way. And you are able to monitor and surveil that portion if you have a lot of influence in that movement, in that organization that you may have created yourself for the purposes of controlled opposition. For another COVID-related aspect, we have this dichotomy between the real world and the digital world. And that divide is just getting increased evermore with all of the different regulations, the lockdowns, the working from home, the Zoom meetings, the remote learning with kids, all of these different things, you have the world being experienced through a digital filter. And as I talked about, when you have this digital filter and this ability for these platforms to control Basically, they are the filter and they control content as it comes in and out. And so when you have that, 
as the filter that you are seeing the world through just as a whole, even more than you hearing news stories and you reading articles and you hearing what's going on in the world. Even more than that, it's you interacting with your teacher. It's you talking to your family. It's you doing your job. All of these things are going through this digital filter. And so even the way that you are seeing the world and experiencing the world and interacting with the world is being manipulated and can be manipulated. Now, it's not necessarily that when I call somebody through Facebook and I'm talking to a family member one-on-one through a video screen, it's not that Facebook is then changing my words and changing what they hear and changing what I see and all these things. That's not really what's happening. But there is a filter there that can cut off the conversation if it gets into something that they don't want to be discussed. Now, that's not really happening as much now. Now, there are some stories of similar things happening, especially in the teaching setting. But it is more that that conversation can very easily and is being uh, transcribed. It is being monitored. It is being surveilled. There could easily be a keyword search done to see who all has talked about the QAnon conspiracy, for example, and things of this nature. And so it's all, you've got all that data there because of the method that is being used. And so you know that's kind of a side aspect to the manufacturing consent. It's in order to manufacture consent, you do have to know how the public is reacting. You have to know how to manipulate the public. And so therefore, you need to have the data for this. You need to know how people are thinking and how they're responding to things. And the way to do that is to be able to monitor what they are thinking and how they're responding. If you have their social media information with all of their posts and their retweets and their conversations and their messages and all of these different things, then you have all that information that you need for manufacturing consent. Now, for a side note, it's not just that this digital aspect has been amplified by COVID, but the physical aspect has been brought down many notches where it's not just that you're not out in the physical world as much, you're not working in the physical world as much, you're not shopping in the physical world as much, or eating out in the physical world as much. But even when you are, you are distanced from people. Everybody has a covering over their face and you can't even see all their facial expressions and all of these different things and these different measures. There's a barrier between you and the cashier. Uh, People aren't really hugging or shaking hands. It's this diminishing of the physical realm while the digital realm is just getting completely amplified. And so it's really, again, amplifying this either this problem or the potential for this problem of manufacturing consent through these means and methods. Now, the final thing that I wanted to bring up was something that came up in a, I have a blockchain group that I go to once a month and we discuss many different things. And this ended up coming up about perception versus reality. And there's kind of a disturbing thought that I had with this that at some point, perception can become reality. And so if you control perception, can you control reality? So the idea here is that if people perceive that, let's say, a social credit system would be good for society in America, well, if you could create that perception, then you could create that reality. Whereas now, if you bring forth that idea of a social credit score in America, people would freak out. That's a conspiracy theory. You know, that's never going to happen. No one would ever go for that. But what if you manipulated 
people's perception of this concept and you slowly start to change the narrative and you change their opinions and people start to get on board with this. Now, you would still have the fact that there are X, Y, and Z issues with the social credit score and X, Y, and Z dangers and X, Y, and Z examples of how it's been abused and how it's a completely corrupt system and how you know it'll be very bad for the majority of people. But regardless of those facts, if people perceive a social credit score as a good thing and you get that among the majority of the population, let's say 80 or 90% of people are on board with this, the, the masses are for it, then it becomes a reality that a social credit score is good for society because that's what the vast majority of society wants. And they're going to get it and they're going to think it's a good thing. And the social credit score becomes a reality and people are going to treat it in such a way that it is a good thing for society. And that's what they believe. That's how they are treating it. That's what is actively working in society. And therefore, perception became reality all because you manufactured consent for something that wasn't there to begin with. And there are all kinds of examples of how uh, different things like this could play out. But it's this idea that you have reality and then you have perception. And the whole point of marketing, for example, is that you work with the perception of a good or a service. You make people perceive it in a certain way, and that's what makes them want to buy said thing instead of focusing on the said thing itself and only that said thing, because it's all about what people think of that thing or that service. And that is what marketing is. It's manipulation. It is propaganda. It is manufacturing consent to purchase a certain thing. And so there are a lot of issues where there might be facts and there might be logic and there might be science and there might be all of these what we would think of as concrete things that prove a certain reality. And we could say that there are things that are real, that there is a reality. These are real things that really exist and can be proven. However, if you change the perception of everybody that is interacting with said things, said reality, then that reality can possibly no longer exist because nobody else is on board with that reality being true and therefore that reality no longer becomes true. Even just a basic thing like biology and gender, that's something that if you would have looked 50 years ago, it was very simple. If you have certain parts, then you are a male. If you have other parts, then you are a female. And it goes a little beyond that. You have the chromosomes and things like this. And you know, obviously you have the 0.001% of you know, abnormalities that are very different and go outside of the scope of this. But in general, it was pretty basic that you have male and female, and it's easy to tell them apart. That's simple biology, scientific fact, that is reality. However, things have been perceived in the modern day to be different than that. And the perception is that that is not a cut and dry issue. It's not just about the biology. It's not that one person is male and one person is female. Maybe one person was supposed to be female, but they're really male. Are they really male? Well, no, they're really female because that's what they're supposed to be. And then we you know, alter the biology in order to fit that perception. And 
the perception becomes reality. And that's kind of the whole thing. And this happens in many different ways that you don't really think of. And it can happen in ways that you would think are extremely cut and dry and scientific. And no, there's no way you can change this. This is a fact. Well, facts can change if you change how people perceive them. The same could even be true of basic aspects of the world of gravity of you know some of the most basic fundamental things especially when you get into the realm of the digital world what about when we have a virtual space that looks real it feels real it smells real it tastes real everything about it seems real the laws of nature are different here and so because they are perceived as different because you know you would perceive it differently in this virtual world, you would perceive gravity as being different than the way it is in the real world because, you know, in this virtual world, it is different. And so, therefore, in your world, your reality, gravity is different than it is in real life and true reality. But is that really your true reality or is this your true reality? you got the matrix issue here of, you know, being plugged in versus not. Yeah, I'm, I'm done. So I'm going to wrap up the episode here. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for all of your support. Thank you for the patrons, especially, and those of you who are sharing the podcast in general, people that are following on Twitter or getting extra content. I posted a funny clip that kind of goes along with this conversation here, I guess a week or two ago, I don't know, something like that. But it was coverage of different news agencies covering similar stories. And not only similar, but they're saying the exact same line. So have one newscaster start off with a few words and another jump in with the same next few words and another jump in with the same next few words. And then you have like two dozen newscasters all reading the exact same lines about the same story from, you know, two dozen different organizations and locations and regions and all kinds of things. And so it brings up this whole point of controlling the narrative. And I've mentioned that before about how uh, newscasters basically can get a cheat sheet of these are the stories to cover. These are the top stories going around right now with little blurbs about them that sometimes just get read directly. And so if you don't follow on Twitter, you miss out on little things like that. But other than that, I would encourage you to go to the website as well because I have created a new COVID page. The formatting is kind of crappy and I apologize for that, but it does have uh, notes and references for various things related to lockdowns and masks and COVID as a whole and generally all from the contrarian perspective, but with sources cited from reputable sources. So if you need some of that information or want some of that information, it is there on the website. When you do the pull down tab, it is, I think, the very first page there. And you can look through the other resources there. I finally updated the outline. I hadn't updated it since the end of season one. So it was very out of date and I did update that as well. So if you have any other questions about anything, feel free to email me, rfoundations at protonmail.com. All of these things are in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and for all of your support. I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.